You're listening to the Careers Talk podcast series, a Salt Studios production. A career in the sciences is rewarding and opens up opportunities to work with experts in their field and in research roles within academia. But the skills learned in the sciences can be used across many industries. In this episode, Ornella explains how her career progression has gone from working in universities to applying her skill set for the benefit of a not-for-profit. Ornella also gives great advice on the process of looking for and applying for scientific roles and how to prepare for interviews and what to expect when they arrive. Ornella, we discussed in our previous episode uh, your journey through education and then through your master's, so your study and your degree. From there, though, you need to make some decisions about where you're going to get a job, where you're going to go next. How was that process for you? I guess you finish your master's and you're trying to work out, you know, I'm, I'm 27 at that point. I'd already done quite a bit of study and thinking about, okay, what jobs are out there in terms of who would want to employ me with my skills. I guess at the time there was lots of research projects out there that were looking for a research assistant with my skills. Uh, and I happened to be lucky to land a job at Deakin University at what was then the School of Human Movement. And the project that I worked on was around physical activity and health how do you get people to be more active? What are the domains of health that people go through in terms of becoming ready to be physically active, uh, looking at intervention or different programs for that? And so that's where I sort of cut my teeth. It was in an academic environment. So, you know, you have to write papers and the results of your study and working with a team of researchers. So that was my first job. I think that was about a year and a half that I worked there. How did you find that going into an environment where you'd be with other researchers, other very senior people who had a lot of runs on the board and you not necessarily in that working environment? Was that intimidating for you? It's always intimidating to start a new job, but you find that those research groups, they're quite diverse. So they're not just all senior researchers and professors. You've got honours students, you've got PhD students. They're all about the same age as me a little bit younger, but, you know, like there's a dynamic sort of an environment where it's young people and older people and people who are mid-career and people who are, you know, experts in their field. So you get a mix of people. So I had a really great experience there. There was a lot of uh, different people to work with. It was a, you know, we had actually had a lot of fun, you know, you had the work that you had to do, but then there was another element to it. There was a social element to it. Um, And it was great. It was like a really fun job to do to start with and you learn a whole different area. But, you know, like you you get the basics and the theory in your course and then you actually have to apply it to an actual uh, study or work environment so that in that you sort of build your knowledge. Uh, But it was great. It was a great experience for me and it was a great research team that I was working with. So, yeah, I had a great time. How did you discover some of those opportunities and how did you then apply for them? Because if I think about my world, which is a lot more creative, I was in journalism and media and, you know, that's going and giving someone a portfolio or doing a mock interview. So that's pretty straightforward. But in that academia world, I imagine it's a lot different. Usually they advertise for people, either in the newspaper or online. You would find those jobs in things like Seek Now and or ethical jobs, there's another place that you can look for research jobs. They were easy to find in my time and they're still there. I know that universities advertise 
on those sites as well when they're looking for people to do research. It's not always word of mouth. You know, if they've got somebody that they know, but often they don't, and uh, they're looking for a research assistant with certain skills or a research officer, yeah, you'll find them on those platforms. And is the next step from there, is it generally an interview or does it involve selection criteria or how do you go from seeing the job ad to hopefully getting the job? Well, you always have to get your CV together. A big tip is making sure you answer the selection criteria when you're applying for a job. Have a heading of what the selection criteria is and write a paragraph about how you meet that is really important. I know when I'm looking to employ people, people that make it as easy as possible for me to find out their skills is probably the best thing for me. And I know that they're actually interested and they're conscientious enough to actually do that. And yes, you do have to go for an interview. For that particular job, I had a panel of about six people interviewing me. So that was unexpected. I wasn't expecting that, but you know, it went well. Uh, And they sort of asked a whole lot of questions about my skills and how I could apply them to their project. They ask you questions about, you know, what you're like working as a team, because In my area of work, you do have to work as a team. You have to work with a whole lot of different people at different levels with different skills and different knowledge, and you have to be able to work in that team. No one ever does anything on their own in this sort of profession. So, you know, what what do you like to work with? What's your knowledge? And how, how much initiative do you have? Because a lot of the time you may not know what you're meant to be doing, but you have to take the initiative and work with doing a bit of research and getting on with it, even though you may have no idea initially what you're doing. I guess having some self-confidence to just dive in and do things is something that they look for too. So you're a researcher. What's your next move after a career in research? If you're a research officer or a research assistant, often the work is based on a grant that you would have applied for through the National Health and Research Council. There's finite work. So maybe it's a three-year grant, and then you're either working with the team to get another grant or your maybe your team supervisor may go to another university and do something else. So I guess you have to be prepared that there are times when you're kind of uncertain as to whether you're going to get some funding to continue your project. Fortunately for me, I had those opportunities, but this time around it was my direct supervisor was leaving to go to Macquarie University. So he was completely taking his projects and going. So I had to find a new job. At that point, you know, you're kind of looking in the same places. And I saw this particular role, which was at that time was the Centre for Clinical Effectiveness, but it did turn into Monash Institute of Health Services Research. When I first started, it was a job where I was searching for research studies to support clinical practice within the hospital. So let's just say I don't know, a surgeon wanted to know about the effectiveness of a particular post-surgery drug and I would have to go look at the studies that have been published and give an overall picture of whether the studies were any good and what did they say. And based on that, he would make a decision around whether he might change practice or not. So that was my initial sort of starting point in working what is known as evidence-based practice. So that the treatments that you get are all based on good quality evidence and they can then be administered to patients which have a good outcome. So for safety and effectiveness, you have to look at the broader picture 
And often you think, oh, I'm just going to go to my doctor and he's just going to give me a drug and all the studies have been done and it'll work. Well, sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes the studies are a bit old. Sometimes practice has changed and people haven't changed with it. It's complex. And, you know, you start working in that environment and looking at how decisions are made based on the research evidence that's been published and then putting that together and getting an overall picture of that. I guess that's where I started working in that space, which then I worked with the Pharmaceutical Benefits Advisory Committee. I was a reviewer for them. And what I would do was for new medications that wanted to be on the pharmaceutical benefit scheme. So for those that don't know, when you go and get a script to get a medication, it's subsidised by the government in what's known as the pharmaceutical benefit scheme. In order to be on that scheme, pharmaceutical companies have to apply for their medication to be on there. They have to show the evidence to say that it works and that it's safe and that it's cost effective. So in other words, you know, for what they're going to charge the government, it's an effective use of the money. And so I had to look at all of those things, piece it together and write a commentary about that, about whether I thought the evidence was any good, whether their modelling was any good, whether the inputs into their modelling were any good. And so I had to do that for the Pharmaceutical Benefits Advisory Committee. I'd have to turn up at those committees, talk about the application and then inform their decision they ultimately made the decisions and they also had the applications, but they didn't do the ins and outs of trying to work out whether there was a study missing or whether the inputs in the model were wrong. So they're the types of things that I did while I was there. And I also did that for the Medicare Benefits Advisory Committee. So for any surgery or any medical devices that wanted to be on the medical benefits scheme, I would also do that for those technologies as well. That sort of moved me into that sort of area, again, writing publications and also writing grants because everything needed to be funded externally. And that's sort of the life of a researcher and working in a research department is about seeking funding. I imagine that would come with a, a certain amount of pressure as well. I mean, you, you wouldn't want to front up with some stats or a study that was wrong, right? So how did you mitigate those potential problems and make sure that what you were handing over was truthful? That was one of the most stressful jobs I've ever done. You had to do the searches in, with the medical literature. You had to make sure you had all of them. You had to make sure that what they gave you, because sometimes they would give you commercial and confidence work. And so, yeah, you'd have to be really thorough and pedantic about the types of things that they gave you and then doing your own bit of research to make sure that things made sense. For example, you know, you just needed to know what were they comparing their drug to? Were they comparing it against placebo or were they comparing it to something that was already on the market, which is what they needed to do? So, Often, you know, sometimes they do things in a certain way to get a certain outcome and it was your job to make sure that things were being done correctly. And, yeah, there's a lot of pressure in that job and a lot of pressure to get it right. If you look back on your education there then, uh, what were some of the the skills you learnt at university, maybe even high school, that were perfectly aligned with this role in order for you to complete it professionally without any mistakes? Well, the Masters was the main bit that showed me because it was all about, okay, what are types of different studies are there? What are the key features of a randomised control trial? You know, even things like looking at the dosage of medication versus, you know, the dosage of some other medication, looking at the outcomes, what are they measuring? Are they measuring 
mortality? Are they measuring quality of life? So it gave me a really good grounding to have an understanding of clinical research. And that then gave me the tools to work on those things. In terms of high school, I think just having that analytical, mathematical, you know, working in that science, biology area, it also gives you a good grounding to have an understanding of that. So if you've already got an understanding of basic maths, and I know they do biostats at high school, will you use that? biostats or statistics, you use that in research all the time. I mean, that's how you work out whether the results are significant or not. You use that um, study design. I know that they do that. Uh, Looking at study design and methods, you would use that, you know, right now in high school, they learn those sorts of methods for certain subjects. And so they are the things that really apply very, very directly to the type of work that I do. Mm. You're obviously a manager at a, uh, a not-for-profit. Talk to me about that. What is it? What do you do? And what's the benefit in you working where you are for uh, the people you support? I work for an organisation called Musculoskeletal Australia. It is a not-for-profit consumer organisation. It's a charity. And we support people with musculoskeletal conditions, which includes back pain, like chronic back pain, uh, rheumatoid arthritis, osteoarthritis, osteoporosis, lupus, gout, fibromyalgia. There's like 150 conditions which fall under this musculoskeletal condition. Really anything where there's inflammation of the bones or the joints, those sorts of conditions, people that have those conditions are the people we support. And we kind of do that in different ways. Uh, We do that through information. So we have a lot of information that is easily understood around, you know, what is your condition? How is it diagnosed? What treatments are used to manage it? What other things are used to manage it? Um, Navigating health systems. They're the types of things that I do in my particular job for this particular organisation. And there's lots of different consumer, not-for-profit organisations that are out there. I happen to work for one with musculoskeletal conditions, but there's the Cancer Council. So there's many other not-for-profit organisations. And for me, identifying information to give people is that it's based on good quality evidence. So when you're recommending what medications are used, you would be only putting things forward that you know are a good part of good clinical practice. You're not going to be saying, oh, yes, take green-lipped muscles for your rheumatoid arthritis when there's no evidence to support that. And there's lots of that. Many people can swear by lots of different treatments or really there might be a lot of claims about different treatments, but without the evidence it's really hard to recommend that in practice. And so for me, a lot of the time I'm looking at what's the research background with all of these recommendations that we're making. So that's one aspect of it, understanding the research and what is current clinical practice. The other aspect of it is, well, what is health policy? What is actually listed on the pharmaceutical benefits scheme? What is the health services available for people with musculoskeletal conditions? What is available from your GP? Do you have to see a specialist? Do you have to see a physio? So there's lots of elements of care and health that form part of my job. So I manage lots of different areas. 
I manage the information services that we have on our website. I manage our helpline. We also do webinars for consumers. We have a kids program because children can also get arthritis and identifying ways in which we can support them because support for them is not the same support for older people. What's your people management process? How do you like to deal with them? I really love working with a team. I don't like working on my own. I feel that working with others, you can really appreciate the skills that they have that I don't necessarily have and really valuing and acknowledging the skills that other people have. And I think it's about respect. You know, if you respect people, you respect their skills, you respect what they bring. And really working as a team, I find has been the best way for me to work and to manage a team. You know, you don't have to be serious to be a manager. You have to be a person who understands people. And I think in having that understanding and being able to work with people, you really can bring something together, which is so much better and richer when you're all working together and have that mutual respect and kind of have a bit of fun along the way. It doesn't always have to be serious. It's about acknowledgement of your team and having a real respect for what they have to say and really considering it rather than thinking you've got all the answers because you don't. Some people come up with great ideas that you don't have. Being open-minded about that, I feel, has been the best way to manage a team. You would have seen a lot of people start their career under your management or under your leadership, if you will. How are you finding their transition into the workforce? Is it sort of a, a similar thing to what you feel you went through back in the day or are there different issues or different skills coming to the table than what you've previously seen before? I always find it great when you start with somebody who's, you know, starts at a very junior level and they just build their skills and knowledge and then they end up doing these amazing projects and managing these trials and really excelling. And I think that seeing that and being able to think that you've been a part of that always makes you feel really good. Even though things have been different along the way, I mean, the process is the same. You still have to have good relationships with the people that you work with. You still have to build knowledge that you don't have and build on the knowledge that you have. You have to work hard, of course, because it's part of the job and you, you've got a whole lot of things that you have to do, so you have to be pretty dedicated. Those things are all the same. It's just the amount of effort that you put in and where you put it in, but really the base level of what you need to do in the work is one thing, but never lose sight of the fact that you work with people because if you're not going to have good working relationships, then career-wise, it's not going to go that great. You really have to be respectful and encourage your team and, and have that sense of working with people rather than people working for you. In your opinion, what are the fundamental traits to succeed in a professional working environment? Kind of need it a mixture of a whole lot of things. You have to be dedicated. You have to be willing to do things which are uncomfortable, which you're not very readily ever done before, but you're kind of thrown in there and you do it and you suck it up. Don't fear the unknown. And there's lots of, you know, examples of where, you know, you have to do public speaking. I hate public speaking, but I do it. I had to front the media this year. I don't want to do that, but I do it. And it works out that it's fine and good and, you know, you get this experience and you build on it and the next time you do it, it's not so bad. But you have to step outside the comfort zone. I think that's what I'm saying. And it's okay. You'll be okay in order to do that. 
like I said, you've got to be a people person. You have to work with people. You have to understand you don't have all the answers because that's why you work as a team. Each person has different skills. And, yeah, sure, you can be the problem solver as a manager and you have to do that. Empower your team to do it, but sometimes you have to be the problem solver. Those sorts of things are important in this sort of environment. You also have to support your supervisor and your CEO and your boss. In your role as manager, you're making decisions on the young generation coming through as to whether they've been successful in their job application. What are the sorts of things you're looking for when they front up for the interview? I want them to know what it is they're applying for and have done some background reading on the organisation and the work that we do. Like that is fundamental and I cannot say how many times people have looked great on paper and they've come in and they've got no idea no idea. You ask them very simple questions about the organisation and they have not done any background reading or they feel very confident that they can get the job based on their past skills. And that doesn't work for me. (laughs) It doesn't work for anybody because it just shows a lack of interest. And so you've got to be interested in the role. You've got to be interested in the organisation. You have to really think about your own skills and how you're going to use them in the job that you're applying for. And you have to show a level of enthusiasm for what the job is. But really just be natural and yourself and that would come through. The knowledge that you have and being enthusiastic and having all of those things, I think that's what I look for when somebody comes through the door and sits down in front of me for a job interview. In your career to date, what's the biggest change you've seen within your industry? Within the research area, it's just become very competitive. It's a very highly competitive environment to get grants. And so a lot of the time you have to expand how you do get your funding. So that's a big part of it. I think it's a lot more flexible. There's a lot more working remotely and flexibility in terms of work-life balance. I guess there is a lot more emphasis on the fact that it is a competitive space. Finally, What would be your advice to students who want a career in the sciences? I would say do it because it teaches you so many different skills. Well, some people may have a really direct view of where they want to go and they've set their minds on something. But for those that are unsure, it just gives you so many opportunities. Even down the track, you get some fantastic skills. I've had to learn a whole lot of different areas that I know nothing about every time. I've had to learn about anesthesia, surgery, musculoskeletal conditions, physio, back pain treatments. That grounding that you get in your science degree builds that ability to learn quickly something new that you've never, ever looked at ever in your life and actually then be quite proficient. And you get a whole lot of skills along the way. I would say I am a jack of all trades and a master of none, but (laughs) all of those skills gives you this expertise which a lot of people don't actually have. And even though you think, oh, yes, I'm not specifically this one area, you have this very broad understanding of things which really comes in handy when you're doing something which is quite complex outside of one area of expertise, which is often the case in this area. By her own admission, Ornella hates public speaking and fronting media interviews, maybe even this one. But she does it because she's passionate about the causes she's involved in. 
That's the big takeaway here. All of us will deal with situations we don't want to be in throughout our career, but if we're working in something we truly believe in, the difficult, unfavourable tasks become easier to handle. That process starts with education, by learning subjects you're not good at or dealing with students you don't agree with. It's called resilience and it's something you will rely on throughout your career. You're listening to the Careers Talk podcast series, a Salt Studios production.